You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to uh, the book of Genesis chapter 14. Uh, Another uh, important announcement I forgot to make is uh, next Sunday we're going to be starting our membership class, Membership Matters, and um, it's a three-week class, so uh, it'll be next Sunday and then the following two Sundays. uh, We'll meet downstairs uh, in the fellowship hall at 9.30, and if you're interested in exploring membership at Harbin's, now this, the membership class doesn't obligate you. It's not like, you know, you're in there and you show up and, oh, we've got you now. No, it's a no-obligation kind of thing. It's it's just a a time for you to learn more about Harbin's, uh, what we believe, info about the church, and it's really a tool to help you decide if this is the place that you're going to be. So that's starting next week, and there's a sign-up sheet for that in the back. If you can let me know in advance that you'll be there, uh, just write down your information, your contact info, email, that would be great. Uh, appreciate that. All right, Genesis chapter 14, and, um, and we've been learning about a man named Abram, and we've been enrolled with him in the school of faith. Abram's relationship with God began through faith. Abram started out as a moon-worshipping pagan in Ur of the Chaldeans, and the Lord appeared to him and offered Abram himself, and also a bunch of glorious promises, promises of a land that would belong to him and his offspring, promises of great blessing, and promises that the entire world would be blessed through Abram. And Abram wholeheartedly embraced those promises. We saw that uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, That was the starting point of his journey of faith. Your starting point on the journey of faith begins when you uh, believe the climactic fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abram, the promise of the gospel, uh, which is the good news that offers hope for sinners like you and me, the promise that though we deserve God's wrath for our sins, Jesus Christ came into the world to pay the price for us, receiving God's wrath in the place of sinners as a substitute when he died on the cross. And if you place your hope in the resurrected Jesus turning away from your sins and embracing him as Lord, you too can escape the judgment of God through faith in Jesus Christ. If you have not done that, I want to encourage you, highly encourage you, to consider Jesus and embrace him as Lord and Savior. But faith in God's promises is not only the entry point for salvation. It is the means by which we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, living for God, living, living for holiness every day, and receiving and enjoying the, the peace and satisfaction in Him that is superior to anything else the world has to offer. You do that by faith. And as we've been journeying with Abram through the school of faith, we have seen Abram take a few exams now. Uh, none of us like exams. Some of you have horrible memories from from grade school or college about exams. I mentioned the word exam, and you lock up, and you have post-traumatic stress. You just don't like that. But in the school of faith, we don't need to fear tests. The purpose of these tests is not to destroy you, but to build you up. So, in the school of faith, even when we don't do so hot on the exam, it ends up being for our benefit as we learn and grow from it. That's why Uh, James in James chapter 1 tells us to count it all joy when you uh, face trials of of many kinds. The the testing of your faith will will yield good results in the end. Now, Abram had a pretty spectacular failure 
in chapter 12 when famine hit the land of Canaan, the land that God promised to him. He gets afraid. He doesn't trust God's going to provide for his needs. And he leaves the land that God called him to to go to Egypt for survival. But when he gets to Egypt, he becomes afraid that people are going to kill him. And instead of trusting God's promise to protect him, Abram ends up seeking to protect himself his way. And he falls into all kinds of deceitful and uh, uh, shameful behaviors sinful behavior, putting his wife at risk, even lying to Pharaoh, the king of the land, which ends up putting Pharaoh and his household at great risk, hurting them. His lack of faith really just messes everything up. But in chapter 13, we meet a completely different Abram. Uh, We saw this last week. He and his nephew Lot now are so wealthy that the land can't hold both of them. Quarreling is breaking out between Abram's men and Lot's men, and the tension is rising. And for the sake of peace, Abram makes an amazingly generous uh, proposal. His solution is to tell Lot to pick whatever land he wants, and Abram will have the leftovers. Even though Abram had first rights to the land through cultural custom and through divine right, for that matter, So Abram doesn't fight for his rights, and he doesn't pull rank on Lot or or, or sinfully scheme and plot and try to manipulate the situation like he did in Egypt. Abram proves himself to be the bigger man, and he honors Lot in this magnanimous way. And the reason he was able to selflessly love and serve his nephew is because unlike chapter 12, Abram was resting in in the promises of God. In chapter 12, he was afraid that God wouldn't provide for him. In chapter 13, he has no doubt that God will provide, and that that liberates him to serve his brother and not try to fight for his own way. And so, when Abram makes this generous offer, he's walking by faith. But we saw last week that Lot is walking by sight. Chapter 13, verse 10 tells us that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Lot was entranced by the fertility and the beauty of the land. It looked like the best land. It looked like where where he could prosper and be the most successful. But the problem is that Lot makes his choice solely on the basis of material considerations uh, as opposed to spiritual. And Moses, the author of Genesis, gives us an early hint towards the foolishness of Lot's choice. Uh, He tells us in verse 13 uh, that the people of Sodom, this is uh, verse 13, chapter 13, the people of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Indeed, this region is is marked for God's judgment. Its days are numbered. uh, They will be destroyed. So, Lot greedily goes for what he thinks is the very best with no regard for his uncle, and as Lot is tramping off towards greener pastures, leaving Abram standing in a land that looks nowhere near as nice as the Jordan Valley, God appears to Abram and blesses him, and and once again, He confirms His promise to Abram, and He tells him that everywhere your eyes see, uh, that land is going to belong to your offspring, everything. And Abram knows that even though he can't see it all now by sight, he knows by faith that something is coming that is way better than anything that Lot could have ever hoped for. So now as we come to chapter 14, uh, we'll see that the story moves in such a direction where, as as I heard one person put it, uh, where an an event of international importance sweeps past Abram's tent in Hebron, involving him in a situation that will show on an enormous scale the implications of Abram's faith. It's going to be his biggest test yet in the school of faith. So so what's he going to do? And what can we learn from it? Well, let's find out together 
right now. Please stand with me out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. We stand at Harbin's Church as a way of recognizing that this is the the Word of God, and and we should pay careful attention, and we should be uh, eager to hear with open ears and open hearts what He has to say to us. Genesis chapter 14. Word of God says, In the days of Amraphel, king of of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elessar, Ketoleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sedim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketoleomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketoleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Amim and Shaveh Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Sair, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. And then they turned back and came to En Mesfat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sedim with Ketolermer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elessar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Sedim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fell to the, fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Anair. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Ketolomer and the kings who were with him, The king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons. But take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anair, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a interesting and and somewhat strange chapter with strange places and strange names and strange situations, but this is your holy and inspired Word, and you have a Word for us, for your people this morning. And so, Father, we pray that we would 
hear what the Spirit would say to us through Genesis chapter 14. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, three observations about the text as we continue our enrollment in the school of faith. And, and one of the things that sticks out to me about this text is that the, that the big stories of the world are the backdrop to a greater story. The big stories of the world are, are the backdrop to a greater story. So we, as we come to chapter 14, we've suddenly got this major war on our hands. We have conflict in the Middle East. I know that's shocking to you. We have conflict in the Middle East. There's nothing new under the sun. What's in the headlines now was in the headlines then. Uh, We have an alliance of four kings from the east fighting a confederation of five kings, uh, and those five kings were over city-states in Canaan. A lot of the uh, the, the, the political, the, the geopolitical landscape back then was there wasn't a whole lot of major empires like Egypt. There were a lot of uh, smaller regional powers and, and city-states. And this is what we have in, uh, in this situation in Canaan. So let's meet the, the combatants. Uh, verse 1, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. And we know about Shinar. You're like, really, we do? Yeah, we do. If you've been reading Genesis and if you've been paying attention, we know about Shinar from Genesis uh, chapter 10 and 11. Uh, This is where the the Tower of Babel was built. This is the great Babylon, uh, which which was a major force in the world at that time, a major city. Uh, Next we have uh, Ariak, king of Alessar. Uh, We found his name, or we, archaeologists, have found his name uh, on on certain inscriptions uh, outside of of the Bible, and, uh, and he would be in the region of northern Mesopotamia. Uh, next we see um, uh, Ketoleomer, king of Elam. He is the leader of this group, and uh, his city was also in Mesopotamia, and, and uh, his city was the chief rival to Babylon at that time. And finally, we have Tidal, king of Goim. Uh, many associate Tidal with the Hittites. So these four kings are all together. They're all on the same team. So that's your opponents uh, on one side of the ring. You've got the eastern kings. And in this corner, we we have the the western confederacy. Verse 2, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom. Now, we already know about Sodom. And Bera appears to be the head of this alliance of five. Then you have Bersha, king of Gomorrah. That's uh, another evil city that's closely tied with Sodom. It's eventually going to be destroyed by God with Sodom. That's spoiler. Sorry about that, if you didn't know. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks. And then Shinab, king of Adma, Shemabair, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. So all of these, these cities, these five cities, are known as the cities of the plain. They're all close together. They're in that Transjordan Valley area near the, near the Dead Sea. Verse 3, and all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea, that is the Dead Sea. Uh, twelve, years after, twelve years they had served Ketoleomir, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So the cities of the plain, they've been under the thumb of Ketoleomir. They, they're vassal states, and they've been having to pay tribute to, uh, to Ketoleomir. They've been paying taxes. Maybe, maybe you would call it protection money. You know what protection money is? 
Maybe you've seen some of the, the crime movies where the thugs come to the, the grocery store and they tell the owner, hey, you need to pay us protection money. And the, the poor old guy says, well, I don't, I don't need protection. And they say, well, you do now. Pay up. The protection money, something like that is, is going on. But now the cities of the plain are fed up with this arrangement. And one day they send the tax collectors back east empty-handed with a message. We're done with you. What are you going to do about that? Well, they obviously underestimate Ketelair Mir, as a year later, he comes with fury, and he's gathered these three other allies, probably promising them a share in the spoils, and they come west for the final showdown. Look at verse 5. In the fourteenth year, Ketelair Mir and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Enmim and Shavah Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Sair, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mesfat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. That's fascinating. Some of you are saying, no, Deemer, that really isn't. No, 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 it, it, it actually is. Especially if you've, got a, if you've got a map. Maps are helpful. Geography is helpful. You may have a Bible map that, uh, that shows you the route that these guys took. The ESV Study Bible actually has a really good, good map marking out this route. Uh, uh, but you, you'll notice that the, the people and the groups listed in those verses, none of them are the cities of the plain. Uh, all of these places that are falling uh, uh, under uh, Ketelamir's rampage, uh, they're sweeping into Canaan, and they're ignoring the cities of the plain, and they first wipe out these other groups. So, uh, for example, let's say I'm, I'm holding up a map here, and here's, here's Canaan. Now, you guys are facing me, so I'm going to try to remember that this actually is east from your perspective, and this is west, so let's see if I, if I, if I get this right. But, but, uh, but the kings of the east are coming from the from the north, and they're, they're, they're descending down into, into Canaan, and they're, they're, they're taking out uh, these various areas. The, the, so the Rephaim would be here, then they go down to the Zuzim and Ham, the, the, the Amim are next, and, and then over here is the, is the hill country uh, uh, where, uh, where uh, the, the dwellers of Sair are. They go there, and they wipe those people out, and then what they do is they, 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 they kind of go south and they curve a little bit like the, the Dead Sea would be right here. So they're kind of going around that and now they're coming back in this direction and they're taking out the Amalekites and the Amorites and the cities of the plain are right here. So now they're coming in this direction towards the city of the plain. Some of you are like, that still wasn't fascinating. I thought it was interesting. So it's amazing what they're doing here. Uh, they, they seems like they are cutting off those who potentially may support the cities of the plain. Or they may be just seeing another opportunity for profit. Hey, we're here anyway. Uh, let's go ahead and rack these other, uh, ransack these other people. Maybe this is a way that they're paying off their, uh, his allies. But what is clear is that this is a massive, powerful, dangerous force, and they are taking everyone out, and they're undefeated. And finally, after knocking off the Amorites, they start marching towards the cities of the plain, coming now at them from the west. And as they are marching towards them, verses 8 and 9 say that finally these five Canaanite kings 
led by Bera, king of Sodom, go out and face them in the valley of Sedim. And verse 10 describes the battle. It says, Now the valley of Sedim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So there's these bitumen pits. A lot of translations, your translation, may say tar pits. I think the King James says slime pits. However you want to describe it, they're not anything you really want to fall into. Uh, But you may want to hide in them. And that's what some scholars suggest, that these Canaanites actually, knowing the area well, knowing these pits, were able to flee there and perhaps take cover there somehow. Pretty messy business, but at least they've gotten away with their lives. But however you slice it, uh, the battle is an absolute disaster for the Canaanite kings. Their forces are either in pits or they are scattered throughout the hill country. It is a crushing defeat. And so now, Ketolaimir can do exactly what he's come to do, and that's clean house. He's going to take everything. Verse 11, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Now, so so they've come down around this way, they've circled around, they've attacked the cities of the plain, and now they're going up this direction, going towards home. Now, here's the point I want to make before moving on. In that day and age, in that day, this would have been a big deal. What's going on here would have been at the top of the headlines. This would have been all, on all the major cable news networks. Breaking news, going all the time. 24-hour coverage of this conflict between the eastern and western kings. Everyone would be talking about it. It would have been the number one story of the year. But I want want to propose to you that the importance of this story really has nothing to do with taxation or disputes among the world's power players, the, the big movers and shakers of the world. There's only one reason why this story is important, and it's found in verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. This story is important because it affects Lot. And Lot is important because he's connected with Abram. And Abram is important because he's God's man playing his role in God's global redemptive purposes. If this story did not intersect with Abram and God's redemptive work through Abram, we would not even know who all these kings were and we would not even care. What I'm trying to say is that in history, in the history of the world, there are countless stories of various degrees of impact and importance. Uh, There are things that go on that grab our attention and grab the headlines, but the most significant things happening in the world are not the things people are impressed by, not the things grabbing the headlines. Instead, the most significant thing is what is God doing behind it all? That's the real story. People and nations and kings and empires come and go and rise and fall, but God's grand global purposes press forward, and that's what really matters. And so as we live our lives, as we, as we watch the news, as we stay informed on current events, whether it's war, politics, whatever it might be, don't be too impressed. Don't be too overwhelmed. Just know that whatever you're seeing is subservient to the larger story that's going on in this book. And we want to view all other stories through the grid of this story. This is the most important news story. And we need to be much more familiar and impressed with and eager to know this story than whatever story Fox News or talk radio tells you. And we want to let our interpretation of all the lesser stories be shaped by our knowledge of the really big story that's going on. So yeah, this is, this is, a, this is um, 
a major event of this time, and, 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 and sure, people are being affected, but the really important thing is the intersection of this story with God's story. The next thing I want us to notice is that the man of faith takes action for the good of his kinsmen. So, Lot is captured now, and we're not going to spend too much time on Lot today. We'll get back to him in, in a future message. Uh, but I, I do want us to have in the back of our minds, uh, in these narratives, this subplot of Lot and his story. And we do want to follow his trajectory, because I think we'll learn some things about it. Uh, last week, we saw in Genesis 13, Lot greedily coveting the region of Sodom because of his promise of material security and prosperity. On the surface, it looked like the very best land, and the very best place for Lot to live, and he greedily goes for it without any concern for, of the spiritual dangers of living there or how the wickedness of Sodom may affect him or his family, and really without any concern for Abram. He takes what he thinks is the very best And we find Lot in chapter 13 pitching his tent near Sodom. He pitches his tent near Sodom. But in chapter 14, where is Lot living now? He's not near Sodom. But in verse 12, it says he is dwelling in Sodom. He is becoming further entangled with Sodom. And that entanglement is only going to continue and get worse, as we'll see in a few chapters. But suffice to say for now that this wonderful place that Lot thought would provide him with material comfort and security and safety has become a war zone. And verse 12 says his precious possessions are stolen from him. Verse 13, then one who had escaped, so this would be a fugitive from the, the battle, uh, came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anair. These were allies of Abram. So this is interesting. Abram is obviously growing a little bit more influential. He's growing a little bit more powerful. He now has allies, the text says. Verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, I bet you've never thought of Abram as a general. Abram now has a fighting force at his disposal, 318 men. Uh, but we know he's also accompanied by his Amorite allies, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, and they probably also have some men of their own. And remember, the Amorites were among the people attacked and plundered by Ketolemir when he went on his rampage. And so it makes sense that these guys would join Abram. Perhaps they too have friends or family taken captive, or maybe they just want revenge. And so they all join forces. Even so, they would still be vastly outnumbered. Their enemies are much more powerful Uh, They've been undefeated as they've swept through Canaan, taking everybody out. Uh, They are a professional fighting force. Sure, Abram's men are trained, but they aren't professional soldiers. And so the odds are definitely against them. And yet, Abram goes anyway. Now, what makes Abram's choice shine as exceedingly generous is when you consider Lot's choice in the first place. Uh, how Lot treated Abram in the last chapter, how despite Abram's other-centered kindness, Lot acted out of self-centered interest, taking advantage of his uncle's kindness, separating himself from the blessing-bearer and following his greed into Sodom. And Abram could have responded by saying, you know what? Lot made his choice. Serves him right. Treating me that way. He made his bed. Now he's got to lie in it and deal with the consequences. He deserves this. Abram doesn't do that. 
he, he charges after his powerful enemies to find and rescue his nephew, and that's grace. He's not treating Lot according to what he deserves. He's not treating Lot according to how Lot has treated him in the past. He's not turning Lot over to the consequence of his own foolish choices. Instead, motivated by care and compassion, he goes to war for his wayward kinsmen to redeem him from captivity. That may sound familiar, as Abram foreshadows Christ. Charles Spurgeon writes, What a splendid type is Abram of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ in love had taken us to be his brothers, but we through our sin had removed into the land of Sodom. The host of our enemies carried us away captives. We were violently borne away into a land of forgetfulness and captivity forever. And Christ, being a brother born for adversity, pursued our haughty foes. He overtook them. He smote them with his mighty hand. He took their spoil and returned with crimson vesture, leading captivity captive. You see, Jesus did not treat us according to what we deserve. He did not treat us as we treated Him. So why did God rescue us? Apostle Paul tells us when he writes in Titus 3, 5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of His mercy. Colossians 1 says that He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And so Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer, is imaged by His ancestor Abram and in His moment of service to His kinsman Lot. Now, it's, just not, it's not just Abram's compassion for Lot that moves him to go on this rescue mission. He could have all the compassion in the world, but if Abram is fearful for his own life like he was in Genesis chapter 12, there's no way he's coming out of his tent to retrieve his nephew. But it appears here in chapter 14 that Abram is starting to get it. He doesn't have to be afraid for his life because God has promised that anyone who comes against him will be cursed. That's a pretty awesome protection clause. I mean, Abram, think about it. Abram is pretty much invincible until God fulfills his promise to give him offspring. Abram doesn't have any kids yet? Great. Let's form a posse. Let's saddle up our horses and let's get the bad guys. I don't have kids yet. God still has a promise to fulfill. Charge. This is so different than the Abram of Genesis chapter 12 who was so afraid for his life that he acts in cowardice and hides behind his wife, making her lie in order to save him. Abram is passing another exam in the school of faith. Uh, We saw last week Abram trusting in God's provision. This week he's trusting in God's protection. Now, this is applicable to you. When you believe, Harbin's Church, that God will protect you and provide for you, you will be amazed at the kind of deeds of love and courage that it will unlock in you. So many times we miss opportunities to, to... serve self-sacrificially. So many times we miss opportunities to give, to evangelize, to minister to someone in need, to lovingly confront someone who needs to be confronted for their benefit, to step out boldly and glorify God in a certain situation. So often we fail to do these things because we don't believe that God will provide for us what we need or we don't believe that He will protect us in the situation. 
But Abram understands what the psalmist would sing later on in Psalm 112, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Abram trusts the Lord. And he and his allies go after these eastern kings, and they've had a head start. But verse 14 says they pursued them as far as Dan. Now that is in the very north of Canaan, almost outside of Canaan. And maybe because of Abram's smaller fighting force and they're not like encumbered with all these, the spoils of war, they're able to move faster and they're able to catch up to their enemies. Verse 15, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hoboth, north of Damascus. So, so he's, he's actually pushing them now out of the promised land. Abram is acting like a king. This is my land. This is what God has promised Me and my offspring, you don't belong here, get out. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So amazingly, this small band of men is able to get the victory. How? How do do they do that? Well, a few verses later in verse 20, we're explicitly told that it is God himself who won the victory and delivered his enemies into his hands. You consider how encouraging this story would be to the original audience of Genesis, that generation of Israelites a few hundred years after Abram. uh, They were about to go into the land of Canaan to possess the land that God had promised to Abram. Uh, They were about to go in and fight these powerful Canaanite tribes, some of them looking like giants, and they had big armies, well-trained, living in fortified cities, uh, and the Israelites had a struggle with fearing the people in the land. It's why the Lord had to say to Joshua, the general of Israel, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so the Israelites would have taken heart and they would have taken courage by looking back and seeing how God was with their forefather, Abram, who had faith in God and boldly took on mighty enemies and pushed them out of the promised land, which is what those later Israelites were supposed to do also. And the Lord proved faithful to give him the victory. This is, this is applicable to us as well. None of you are about to, to, to go out and fight in an, in an armed conflict. I don't, I don't think you are, at least. If you are, please let me know so I can pray for you. But, but there are other situations and challenges that God brings into our life. And, and while certainly uh, most of us are not going to be in, in, in physical armed conflict, the Scriptures do tell us that, that we battle not against flesh and blood but we are waging war against powers and principalities and and evil forces of wickedness, the devil and his demons that are seeking to bring us down, discourage us, drag us into sin and undermine our trust and and, and faith in in the Lord. And and the Scripture says in Ephesians 6 that if we stand in the strength of the Lord, that we can win the battle. Uh, Whatever tough, difficult situation that God has called you to, uh, whether it be a, a very difficult, tough ministry situation, Uh, whether it be parenting your children in a very tough situation. Maybe God has called you to suffer for the glory of God. Whatever it might be, uh, that that, that promise of, of do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, the New Testament version of that is in Philippians where it says that your God will supply all of your needs and nothing is too impossible for Him. And through Christ, you can do all things because he strengthens you. 
So the man of faith takes action for the good of his kinsmen, and we also see that the man of faith treasures God more than the world. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedoleomir and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. So that's not surprising that the king of Sodom comes out. Abram has all the spoils of Sodom. He has all the treasures. He has all the, all the people. And so the king of Sodom comes out to meet him for a little summit. By now, he's showered and washed all the slime off of him from those pits. And he's probably in his regal clothing. And he comes out to meet Abram. What is surprising is that after we have met nine kings so far, in this chapter, suddenly out of nowhere, yet another king appears. Verse 17, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. Now, this is fascinating. This new character comes forward, and he is another Canaanite king. Now, we're not going to be able to get into all the details about Melchizedek and his identity and all those sorts of things. Some of you are, are disappointed that that's not going to happen. Um, if you're in the ladies' Hebrew study, I think you're in the section of Hebrews right now that's going to be talking quite a bit about Melchizedek. So I would encourage you, if you're interested in, in, in Melchizedek and his role in the flow of redemptive history, uh, check out Psalm 110 and Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, and of course Genesis 14, and think about that and ponder that on your own. I can't do all the work for you. You can spend some time in the Scriptures diving into that yourself and, and thinking more about this person, Melchizedek. But there are a few things that we do know just from Genesis 14. He's a priest of the Most High God. Uh, so all of a sudden, we meet someone else in Canaan outside of Abram's family who knows the one true God. And his title is Melchizedek. And that name means King of Righteousness. And his city is called Salem, which means peace. So he is a righteous king of peace. And the city of Salem will become known later on as Jerusalem. And, and, and this king of Salem is juxtaposed with Bera, king of Sodom. Now, interestingly enough, Bera's name means evil. So literally, you've got the king of righteousness and the king of evil in the valley of the kings, coming out to meet Abram in the wake of his victory. And they both offer Abram something. And I will say that what is happening in the valley of the kings is a greater test of Abram's faith than what has happened previously. The tests keep ramping up. So Melchizedek comes, and he offers bread and wine. And verse 19, he says, He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gives him a tenth of everything. Now, you would expect Abram to be blessing Melchizedek. Abram is the one that's going to bring blessing to the nations, after all. But instead, this priest king turns around and he blesses Abram. And therefore, he is demonstrated in this scene to be Abram's superior. And Abram acknowledges Melchizedek as superior by tithing to him. Abram gives him a tenth of all the spoils. Abram sees Melchizedek as a priestly mediator, a representative of God. And Abram giving, giving him a tithe is essentially saying, I agree that God Most High is possessor of heaven and earth, and everything that I have doesn't belong to me, it belongs to God. 
Now, while the righteous king offers bread and wine and a blessing, the king of evil offers something that on the surface is very tantalizing. Verse 21, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now, again, on the surface, this seems incredible, but there's something more insidious going on here. First of all, notice that Melchizedek hasn't demanded anything from Abram. He offers bread and wine and a blessing. He asks for nothing in return. But when Barah speaks, there are no words of thanks to Abram, no praises to God, no acknowledgement that everything belongs to God. The first thing out of his lips is, the, uh, is, the, is a word of demand, give, give me. The king of evil is first and foremost thinking about himself. However, Barah is offering spoil and lots of it, all the wealth of Sodom. Now, can you imagine how much this would elevate Abram's status in Canaan, how this may increase his reputation with the powerful influencers of the land? Surely, Abraham had some wealth already, but this is the wealth and possessions and treasure of an entire city. He's been living in tents as a pilgrim. He could probably now purchase a huge chunk of Canaan with this. And hey, he's supposed to get this land after all anyway, right? So maybe this is the means to make it happen. And hey, Abram earned this anyway, right? I mean, the laws of, and the customs of ancient warfare say that the victor gets the spoils. And that's true. But that also reveals a glimpse of what's wrong with this whole scenario. Barah is really in no position to demand of Abram anything. He's in no position to negotiate anything. He's acting like he is, but he's not. Barah is a defeated king. Barah just got done climbing out of whatever slime hole he was hiding in. Abram is the victor. He has brought salvation to the land, including to Sodom. Abram is supposed to be the one now to dictate where things go from here. He has the rights to all the spoil. Everything now actually belongs to Abram. But if Abram has rights to the spoil already, then why this facade of negotiations? What Barah is doing is he's trying to take the lead in this summit. And he's acting like all the spoils are his And he's trying to give the appearance of being gracious and rewarding to Abram. And and he's giving the appearance of rewarding Abram with something that already belongs to Abram. Even more cunning, he's trying to create a bond between him and Abram. A partnership, a solidarity. And if Abram accepts the terms as if Barah is generously bequeathing all these goods to Abram, then that entangles Abram with Sodom. In other words, there are strings attached to Barah's offer. If Sodom is the patron, then Abram has obligations of loyalty. As someone else aptly put it, Barah is like Satan, a defeated king who acts like he's in charge, offering stuff that isn't his in order to get people to be loyal to him. Barah is trying to get his hooks into Abram, as he's already gotten him in the lot. Now, here's what's interesting. Abram was prepared for this. Abram saw this coming. 
Apparently, he knew enough about the king of Sodom, and he knew enough about the temptations that were going to come to be ready. The reason I say that he was ready in advance is because of verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And by the way, that's exactly what Melchizedek calls God, possessor of heaven and earth. He's putting himself in the camp of Melchizedek. He's joining with Melchizedek. He's showing solidarity with him. And what what has he sworn to, to God? That I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. Did you notice that Abram has already prayed about this? He already fortified himself against this temptation through prayer. He knew this was coming. And he swore an oath not to take anything from Bera. You see, Abram wanted God to get the glory for everything. Not him. If Abram is, is, is going to play into this facade like he is being rewarded uh, by the king of Sodom, it acts like Abram has done all of this and he has earned all of this. And Abram wants nothing to do with this. He wants all the glory and all the credit for everything that has happened to go to God. He swears this oath. I'm not going to take anything from him. Because he knows that Bera would use that to his advantage, and he would broadcast to everyone in Canaan, I'm Abram's benefactor. Uh, We're in partnership. His greatness comes from me. Indeed, he belongs to me. He owes me. I've done this for him. And now Bera gets credit and glory for Abram's greatness and not God. Abram's already prayed about this. And Abram is determined to resist the temptation. Uh, That temptation being, on the one hand, immediate riches and greatness now. He he can have it all now if he would just bind himself to the king of evil. Or he can choose solidarity with the king of righteousness and the Lord God most high and walk away from this essentially empty-handed with still no widespread influence and still no offspring and still no land in his possession. But Abram is learning the truth about what Jesus says later on, what profits a man if he gains the whole world, and yet he loses his soul. And so he chooses the king of righteousness over the king of evil. He, he breaks bread with Melchizedek, which shows solidarity and fellowship and unity. And he trusts that the Lord will provide fulfillment for all of his, all, uh, for all of his needs in God's way and in God's time. He doesn't need to take the shortcut Bera offered him. And again, Abram is a shadowy image of what's going to happen later on to Christ. As Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And Satan, the king of evil, shows Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world and says, you can have all of these right now if you will just bow down to me and worship me. Now, Jesus is already the rightful king of the world. God has made all these promises to Jesus. All those kingdoms already belong to him. They're his by right. But he can take a shortcut. He can take an easy path to the throne of the world. He can have it all right now. He can get power and glory and the applause of men now. Or 
Jesus can wait for God to fulfill his promise in his perfect timing, and Jesus knows that if he waits, he'll still get the kingdoms of the world, but the path leading to the kingdom is rejection and mockery and suffering and a cross. So it's glory now and no cross, or cross now and greater glory later. And Jesus turns around and says, away with you, Satan. Jesus will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything from the devil. Now, what about you? You know that the choice for all of us as a, as a pilgrim people is essentially a choice between the world's path and God's way, between Sodom and Salem between what the world has to offer or what Christ has to offer. Dale Davis writes that if you share Abraham's faith and belong to Abraham's family, you will face the same alternatives. And not merely at the beginning of believing life, but all along the way. It is simply basic first commandment stuff. You shall have no other gods besides me. Sodom is always out looking for lackeys not disciples, always making deals. Salem is about a God who, as possessor of heaven and earth, is adequate to give you all that you need. So, choose this day whom you will serve. Sodom, this world, which offers you pleasures and and, and benefits and a measure of safety and security right now, but, but really it's all false, it's all hollow, it's a sham. There's Sodom on the one hand, and there's Salem on the other hand, God's way, beckoning you to travel a path that is often hard and difficult and and one where you won't see the full benefits until after this life has passed. But nevertheless, such a path is one that is infinitely better both now and later because the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, Jesus tells us, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In other words, what God has to offer in the kingdom is so good that whatever you might lose in the process of obtaining the kingdom does not compare with the value of what comes with the kingdom. And embracing that truth is what living by faith is all about. Let's pray.